We, we have been working our way through Mark, following his travels, or following Jesus' travels, certainly not Mark's, uh, reading about uh, his, uh, his teachings and, and the miracles that he's done along the way. And some of those teachings have been directed at large crowds. We've, we've read about large crowds, uh, upwards of 5,000 men plus. And, uh, but some of those uh, teachings have been directed towards just a few. Particularly, he's focused some of his teaching on just the 12 that were following, those 12 that he appointed uh, to be his disciples. And the, tats, the text that we're going to look at today is one of those. He's focusing his time, his attention on the 12, and we're going to look at that. And I'm going to ask as we begin that we do something just a little bit different. Actually, uh, John, when he was up here, he, he kind of hinted at it. I'm going to ask us to do something just a little bit different. I'm going to ask as we read God's Word that we stand. Um, and we do this, I'm going to ask that we do this not by any sense of um, obligation to uh, what, what Scripture tells us we must do, um, or even just some tradition, but uh, although there is some biblical uh, precedent for us for it, Nehemiah tells us that uh, when Ezra opened the Word of God, all the people stood for the hearing of it. And uh, certainly when we look at, in Luke, there's even an account of when Jesus went into the synagogue in, in Nazareth, and he opened up the scrolls and he read from the scrolls, the people stood and Jesus stood during that reading. So it's important that we have that reverence for the Word of God, and we understand that we're not reading the bulletin, uh, we're not reading the newspaper. This is the Word of God. Whether you're on a tablet or your phone, or you have the family Bible that's been passed down for generations, it is the Word of God that we're reading. Uh, so uh, there's reverence for it, but more so, uh, it's actually for me. Uh, it helps remind me of uh, both the gravity of what's happening, the moment, but the fact that I am not only speaking, but I am being spoken to by the word of Christ now. And so we will read in, in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, picking up at verse 13. This is the word of God. And they were bringing children to him, that is Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. May the Lord add to the reading of his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its teaching. And now I pray that... Uh, I decrease and you increase, that uh, your word is taught to us by your Holy Spirit, that you may be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So as we read this text, we read about an incident in which Jesus responded and he corrected, uh, he, he addressed an offense that had taken place, and he corrected the, his disciples. Uh, and when we, we begin to look at this, uh, there's, a, there's a couple things to note in here. Uh, particularly, I want to note, uh, as we get into it, a common off-ramp that people take when they read this passage uh, and, uh, and uh, almost a side road they take when they look at it. And I don't want us to be confused with that, so we're going to address it when we come to it. But to begin with, we see that they were bringing children to him. Now, we, we probably understand this to mean the parents. The parents of these children were bringing children to Jesus. Uh, and when we look at the children, this is going to be important later, uh, we might ask, well, who were these children? 
And uh, while we don't know their identities, obviously, we can uh, assume that within the Greek uh, that's used in Scripture, that, that word that's used here can be used to describe any child from infancy to about 12 years old. So a, a small child. But particularly, who is he talking about in this case? Who are the children in this case? Uh, we, we should probably understand this to mean infants, babies, is who he's talking to here. And, and you might say, well, Alan, I don't, I don't know where you get that from. Where does that come from? If you look at it, later on in verse 16, he says, He took them in his arms and blessed them. He took them in his arms. That phrase is used previously. He Just a couple of weeks ago, but it might have been a couple of days ago in Mark's time or in, the, in Jesus' time. But just a couple of weeks ago in, in Scripture, we read in chapter 9, verse 36, he says, Who, uh, he, he took a child, put him in his midst, and taking them in his arms... Again, that same phrase is shown there. That, that phrase actually means to cradle. That's what that phrase means. It's, it's used in secular texts of the same time period, talking about a, a Greek, uh, in Greek mythology, uh, there's a Greek goddess called uh, Sibylle who was known to heal children, and she would cradle these children in her arms. And the secular texts use the exact same phrase to describe what was happening here. And so we, we should probably understood this, I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, to understand that, that these are probably babies, children, much of like those that, that we see here. Um, so these were, these were small children, and it says that they brought them to Jesus so that he might touch them. And, and we might wonder why. Why? Why would he just touch them? I, I understand that, that I might bring my child to, to Pastor Nate and say, Nate, Look at, look at my child. Look at my grandson. Isn't he a beautiful baby? And he might touch him, and that's nice. But, but what did they expect to happen here? Well, this is a common occurrence uh, in that day. But people brought their children to rabbis or holy men in order that they may touch them, uh, to, to bless them, possibly even heal them uh, for things that they, they might be suffering. And so this was common in that time for rabbis and holy men. And as we read text, we, the text of Scripture, we understand that, that the people believed that Jesus was uh, at least a rabbi, but a holy man, a man of God, even if they didn't believe his divinity, even if they didn't believe some of the things that he was saying, they understood that he was a man of God. He was a holy man. So, so it's in the realm of possibility that they would bring uh, children to Jesus so that he might touch them and bless them. And, and for this, we see what happens. The disciples rebuke them. Now, of course, we, we don't understand this to mean that the disciples rebuked the children, but rebuked those that were bringing the children. Um, and uh, wh why would they do this? What, what would be the point of rebuking these children? We, well, we don't know the disciples' hearts. We don't know what they were going through at the time. We don't know their motivation. Maybe they believed that Jesus was too busy. He had a lot of things going on. He had a lot of places to go, a lot of people to see. He was doing teaching, and he, we, he often went off by himself and prayed. So maybe he was too busy, or he was too important. Maybe he was too important. Maybe that's what the disciples were thinking. Or maybe it came from their, their own internal motivation. You know, they, they had been walking around a lot. They'd visited a lot of places. They'd done a lot of things. Uh, not too long ago, Jesus sent them out on their own. They had done some healing on their own and, and these type of things. And so maybe they were tired. And, and at this point, they're just saying, just get the kids out of here. We, he doesn't want to see them right now. Or, or maybe, they were, maybe they were tense. 
maybe they had some kind of anxiety. And, and we stopped and think, I don't see that here. I don't see that here. And why would they be tense? I know that if I was with Jesus, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be the kind of thing that I was just happy to be with him? I mean, this is Jesus. This is, this is God in the flesh. He, he created all things. He, he made bread out of a boy's sack lunch. He fed thousands of people. This is Jesus. Shouldn't I take comfort in being in his presence? Well, there's a reason why they might be tense, because for some time now, Jesus has been talking about the fact that he was going to go and be offered up and killed and then resurrected again. And they, at the very least, didn't understand it. And at the most, they thought this was crazy. Even Peter, at some point, it says that he rebuked Jesus for even saying such a thing. But, but all the way back uh, uh, in uh, chapter 8, picking up at, at verse 31, uh, he says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days raised again. Now the same account, uh, the account of this same incident in Matthew, he says at the same time, he says, I must go to Jerusalem, and this must occur in Jerusalem. And, and then along the way, uh, we see that the, after the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration is coming down, he begins talking about the resurrection. And, and they're, they're a little confused at that point. And he keeps talking in, 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 in uh, verse uh, 31 of chapter 9. He says, For his teaching is, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. It says, but they, they didn't understand. So he keeps talking about these things. And, and, and to give you a little perspective, the first incident to take place, the first time he began talking about this was in, in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And to give us a little uh, understanding geographically, the distance from Faith Baptist Church, or, I'm sorry, First Baptist Church uh, in Monterey to Caesarea Philippi is a, probably the, the distance from, from, or from Jerusalem to Caesarea Philippi is probably the distance from us now to the Golden Gate Bridge. That's about how far apart the two are. And as he continues talking, as he, continue, he continues bringing this up, he brings it up again there in Galilee. Now, from Jerusalem to Galilee is about the distance from here to San Jose. So they're moving their way south. Then he brings it up again in Capernaum. And at that point, the distance is about from here to uh, Palo Alto. So they're staying in the same area, but they're still moving south. And then now, the incident that we read at the beginning of chapter 10, it tells us that he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the distance from Jerusalem to the Jordan River is about the distance from here to Salinas. So as he's talking about, i got to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to be persecuted and killed. And they don't understand this, even, even to the point that Peter said, this can't happen, rebuking Jesus. So there's some, there's some anxiety about this, and the whole time he's moving closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. And so while we don't know their motivation, we do know that, that it's likely there, were, there was some anxiety at the time. And you don't act the way you normally do when you're anxious. You know, I used to be in the service. I was in the Air Force. And there was a time when I just happened to be walking by the first sergeant's office. If you're not familiar with the military, the first sergeant, he has kind of a dual role in the unit. He's the guy that uh, is kind of like the mom. He takes care of people in the unit, makes sure that people have the things that they need, 
helps when families are having problems, those type of things. But he's also the, the chief disciplinarian. He's the guy that's going to fix things. And so I happened to be walking by. The first sergeant asked me to come in because he needed me, me to be a third party because uh, that morning they had uh, random room inspections while everybody had, had left their, their dorms already. And one of the airmen's rooms, his dorm room, they found drug paraphernalia. And they were going to bring him in and question about him. Now, this is a big no-no in the military. And so uh, I sat there and listened as, the, as this young airman talked about the fact that the, he, he didn't know what this belong, who these belonged to, it, but he believed that they might have been his roommates, and the roommate left him there after he had already left in the morning, after he himself had already left that morning. So the first sergeant said, okay, well, go ahead and wait outside, and he asked me to wait with him uh, while they contacted the roommate and had the roommate come in so they could talk to him. And so when we walked out, this guy was, he, he was pretty, okay, yeah, I got this. This is no problem. He sat down. Even the young airman that was out there, the admin, he was, they were kind of flirting back and forth, this kind of thing. So he was pretty relaxed. But as he kept hearing updates, yeah, we found him. He's working at another place, the roommate. Yeah, we're going to get him to come over. He's about 10 minutes out. He's about five minutes out. You could see him getting more and more worried about what was going down. Uh, he was getting more agitated. He wasn't, he wasn't flirting anymore. As a matter of fact, he kind of got irritated at her flirting. Um, at some point, he kept getting up and looking and looking around, and he sat down. Every time he sat down, he would rub his hands on his pants. His, his, his palms were getting sweaty. And then when he looked down the hall and saw his roommate pop out and start walking down the hall, he jumped up and walked into the first sergeant's office and asked if he could talk to him. And he fessed up. He said that those were his. He knew what was coming. He knew that the hammer was getting ready to come down on him. And he knew it would be worse if he didn't fess up to it. And so the disciples, they, they had heard about what was coming. They, they, the, Jesus had talked about it, and he kept bringing it up. Sometimes at random times, it might have appeared like random times. And so they knew this was coming, and even though they didn't understand it, they knew it was going to be bad. So maybe at this point, they were a little tense. They were tired or tense. We don't know what their motivation was, but either way... They acted out. They rebuked those for bringing children to Jesus. And then we read Jesus' response. When we look at verse 14, it says that when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. His response was he was indignant. Now, what's interesting is both Matthew and Luke, when they record this event, they remove that description. They simply say that Jesus responded, and they talk about Jesus' words. They remove the fact that he was indignant. Uh, and we don't know if they're trying to tone down the language here, trying to make it seem as if Jesus was not guilty of some possibly sinful expression. Uh, we don't know their motivation behind it, but we understand that, that God is the author of all of Scripture. So God is the one that authored both Matthew and Luke and here Mark. And so uh, it happens. It, it, those things happen. As a matter of fact, in, in chapter 3 of Mark, the, the same sort of thing happens. As uh, Jesus is walking into the synagogue on the Sabbath, there's a man there with a withered hand. And people are watching him to see if he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, says in verse 5, And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. So Jesus was angry then, too, and both Matthew and Luke recorded that when he saw the man, he just had compassion on the man and healed him. So again, in another place, we see that, that Mark records that Jesus was angry. And, and maybe, the, maybe the, the issue is here that, that we're looking at a word indignant. That's not a word that we use a lot. So, so maybe there's another meaning behind this. 
But if we look at the way it's used throughout Scripture, uh, after, after children cried out to Jesus, Hosanna, son of David, the chief priests were said to be indignant. They were angry, the fact that that would be used of him. And in Luke, after Jesus healed a woman in the Sabbath, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant. He was angry that Jesus would do that. And even here in Mark, we, we read uh, later on in chapter 10, uh, where the mother of James and John came to, to Jesus and said, when you come into your kingdom, would my sons be able to sit at your right and left? Of course, she's thinking about an earthly kingdom and a throne. And they, they want her sons, she wants her sons to be with Jesus there in prominence. And it says that, that the disciples, the other ten, were indignant. They were mad about this. And even later, even later in Mark, uh, this woman comes to Jesus just before he, he goes into Jerusalem. Um, the triumphal entry, a woman comes to Jesus and anoints him with expensive oil. It's a blessing on him. She, it, she comes because he's about to go be offered up as a sacrifice. But the disciples just see the waste of this expensive oil, and it says that they were indignant. They're angry. And, and, and so this word is being used here, and, and it means to be angry, but it's, it's anger at an assumed wrong. There's an assumed wrong here. It's not just merely being angry because I'm in a bad mood. But something happens, and it's wrong, and I'm angry at it. And in this case, that assumed wrong is sin. Jesus is angry at a sin that takes place. And Paul more fully describes what this response should look like when he's writing to the church in Corinth. If you look in 2 Corinthians. Now, he had written 1 Corinthians as a letter to them to correct some of the things that they had done, some of the things that were happening in the church, some things that they were ignoring, and some things that they were not doing. And, and, uh, and so in Corinthians chapter 7, he, he reads or he writes about their response. See, that after receiving their letter, the, the church in Corinth, the, the Corinthians, they were grieved over the sin that, that, that Paul had addressed. They're grievous over that. And when Paul writes about that, in chapter 7, verse 8, he begins saying, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that, you, that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So he, he felt bad, but just for a little bit. He goes on in verse 9 to say why it is. So say, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And then look what he says here. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to a salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, there's that word, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. They had expressed anger, they, they, they grieved, and, and they proved themselves innocent. And it's not that they went to Paul and said, look, you got it all wrong. We're innocents. Let's set the record straight. It's that they were so grieved by their sin, they repented of it, and, and they put it away to the point where they were now innocent. They no longer sinned in that way. They proved themselves innocent. See, the Corinthians and Paul, and in here we read Jesus, he expressed anger. It is indignation towards sin. And we go on and we look at the offense. So what, what was the sin? What happened? 
It continues in Jesus' words. It says, let the children come to me. Now, I want to I pause here for a second and talk about what this passage is not about. Because so oftentimes we get this confused. We get this, this passage confused, the meaning of it. Uh, and and uh, we, we think that in here we're talking about, about children coming to Jesus, that, that, that this, this, passage, this passage is used for the uh, foundational text for children's ministries. And, and we see it on the walls in the children's department, those type of things. Let the children come to me, Jesus said. And he is saying that, but this passage is not about children's salvation. It's not about children's ministry. See, we, we all, uh, infants, uh, children, adults, we all sin, <laughs> every one of us. Uh, we're guilty of original sin that, that, that we, we get from our father, Adam. We're all guilty of sin. And uh, if, if you are a parent of a newborn, if you can recall when you had a newborn, um, it doesn't take much to convince you that, that that precious baby, even moments old, sins. It is a selfish, selfish being. That baby doesn't care. Mom, I know that you've been up all night with me, and you'd really like to take a nap, take a nap right now, but I need to eat now, and you're not going to do anything else until I eat. Dad, I, I, I know that you have other things you're doing. I know that, you're, that you were up all night as well. But I am tired, and I can't get myself to sleep. You need to comfort me until I fall asleep. You're not going to do it. Don't enjoy the ball game. Don't enjoy anything else. You're just going to comfort me. They are selfish. But here's the thing. They do not willfully sin. They are incapable of, of repenting. They don't recognize that what they're doing is against God's command. They don't recognize it as sin. They cannot recognize it as sin. And so we see God's mercy. And, and I want you to look at something with me as, as you turn to Jonah. Uh, Jonah is much more than about a big fish as we talk about children's ministry. If you go to Jonah, it's about eight books into the New Test or the Old Testament from the back, about that far from where we're at now in my Bible. So we go to Jonah... And of course, many of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. He ends up going to Nineveh against his own desires. But he goes to Nineveh. Nineveh is described as a great city. It's a big city. And by, even by accounts in, in chapter 3, it takes a three days journey to walk across it. It's a big city. Uh, here it's, it's described as a great city. Historians of the time, uh, both uh, secular and biblical historians, would uh, estimate that the population of Nineveh at the time was anywhere between 600,000 and a million people. That's a pretty large window, we understand, but we're talking about a number of sources. But that's about how many people are in this city. After the, after the city repents and uh, repents of their sin, Jonah's, of course, grieving that. He's pretty sad about that. And he goes out to sulk in the sun, and God sends a plant to shade him. But then the next morning, God sends a worm to kill the plant. And Jonah's feeling pretty miserable, saying he might as well just have died. He has pity for the plant. In the middle of God's rebuke for him, he concludes this book in verse uh, 11. I'll pick up in verse 10. He says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Verse 11, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons 
who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, leaving the discussion for cattle aside, God at this point, He is not being facetious. He's not being mean talking about the people of Nineveh. He's not saying, what a bunch of morons. They don't know their right hand from their left. He's not being mean. And that's out of God's character, is it not? When we understand God. And when we understand that actually there were more like 600,000 to a million people in Nineveh, who is he talking about? He's talking about people that do not have the mental capacity to understand their left hand from the right hand. He's talking about, and not talking about what any drill sergeant or training instructor at boot camp would say, you don't know your right hand from your left hand, soldier. He is saying these are people that don't have the mental, they cannot understand. He's talking about babies. He's talking about possibly those that have mental handicaps. In one way or another, these people do not understand the difference between their right hand and their left. We see an example of God's mercy that he would save Nineveh, 600,000 a million people, for the sake of 120,000 or so people, babies. And, and this, is, this isn't the only example of this. We see it with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's willing to spare these evil, wicked cities for the sake of how many righteous? Ten. If only ten were found there, he would spare these wicked cities. Of course, we know that ten were not found, and so they were destroyed. But God is merciful. And, and this is something that even David, King David, righteous David, a man after God's own heart, that he understood. If you, if you recall that in that, that relationship that he had with Bathsheba, where he, he, he ended up with a woman that was not his wife, had her husband killed in battle, and then from that relationship, she got pregnant. And God said, that baby will die. And the baby was born and was sick. For seven days, Scripture tells us, David mourned for that baby. He mourned. We understand that he, he might have been praying through that whole time. But then when the baby died, he had been laying on the ground. He had fasted, David did. When the baby died, he got up. He brushed himself off. He cleaned himself. He anointed himself, changed clothes, and he worshiped God, got something to eat, and went back on with his daily life. And the people around him were like, what's going on here? When the baby was sick, you could not be consoled. You wouldn't eat. You mourned. And now that the baby died, you're not mourning. You're going on like nothing happened. And this is David's response to them. Second Samuel 12 records in, in verse 22, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David understood there was going to be a day when he was going to go to the child. He understood that that baby was going to be in heaven. We cannot take this as any kind of theological treatment of the doctrine of babies going to heaven. Scripture is not that overt. But when you look at the, the, the entirety of Scripture, what David believed is never countered. It's never rebuked. Nothing in opposition is ever offered. When we look at the entirety of Scripture... I believe that in my heart that babies who die in infancy are in heaven. And I praise God for his mercy for that. 
Having said that, that's not what our passage today is about. Because he goes on and he addresses exactly what the sin is. He's saying, let them come to me, and he addresses the sin. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Do not hinder them, is what he says. You see, the disciples acted as Jesus' gatekeepers. Today we might say they were Jesus' handlers. They decided who came and who didn't, those type of things. And we see it happen again and again and again. When we, when we read about uh, the feeding of the 5,000, just before that, you know, the, they were tired because they'd done so much. And, and even just before the, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus said, uh, acknowledged the fact that they were tired. He says, well, come away by ourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. But before that could happen, these 5,000 people show up and they want to eat. And how did the disciples respond? Send them away. They tell Jesus, send them away. And in Mark 7, we read about the, uh, the, the woman who, uh, she was a Gentile. <clears throat> uh, she's described as a Syrophoenician woman that comes to Jesus wanting to be healed. Uh, or actually her daughter was uh, possessed and she, she wanted her daughter healed. Uh, when Matthew records that, that event, He records that the disciples' response is, send her away. See, at the the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples, they were tired. There's 5,000 people to feed. The task was too big. They had reasons. Send them away. And even now, she's a Gentile. She's not right. Send her away. We see time and again, the, the disciples lacked discernment, didn't they? calming of the sea when they were in the boat. Jesus was asleep. He calms the sea. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? They didn't understand. They didn't get it. After the feeding of 5,000, soon afterwards, there there was 4,000 people. And he said, feed them. And they said, we only got seven loaves. They couldn't remember the 5,000? They didn't get it. And even walking away from that event, immediately after the event, as they were walking away, what does it say happened? they started talking about the fact that they didn't have enough bread for the journey. And Jesus even reminds them, I fed 5,000, what happened? I fed 4,000, what happened? I can't give you lunch? And and again and again, coming down on the Mount of Transfiguration, this amazing thing happened. Moses and Elijah and Jesus, Transfiguration, amazing thing. And the three are coming down, the three disciples that were with Jesus. And he's talking about the resurrection, and they start talking about who's going to be greatest amongst them. They didn't get it. While they're doing that, the other nine are at the bottom of the hill, unable to heal a demon-possessed boy because they wouldn't pray. Again and again, they wouldn't get it. And even when we come to this passage, talking about the children, just the page previously on my Bible, there's the event with the child. Jesus puts the child in the midst of them. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And he continues on later by saying, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believe in me, to sin, it would be better for them to have a millstone put them around their neck and tossed in the ocean. He had just talked about these children, how precious they were. And then now they're like, ah, children, get them out of here. They didn't get it. They were incredibly dense. <laughs> they were amazingly unobservant. 
maybe even overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly self-absorbed. And they were absolutely human. You see, friends, regardless of their motivations or their underlying attitudes, what the disciples did, in essence, happens in our lives every single day. We let our moods get in the way of people coming to Christ. Sometimes we are tired. Sometimes we're sad. Sometimes it's that we're excited and we're happy. But sometimes it's the fact that that our moods, our emotions get in the way of allowing us to, to bring people to Christ. It's, it's just not, now it's not the time. I, I'm, I'm too sad. I'm too excited. I've got great things going on in my life. I'm just going to focus on this right now. Our moods might get in the way. Or sometimes we see that the task, this task is beyond me. This task, it, it seems impossible. I'm not an evangelist. I can't do this. Or sometimes we look at the person, just like they looked at that Syrophoenician woman, that Gentile woman. We say, this person's not right. They're beyond hope. They're beyond my touch. They're beneath my moral standards. I, I, just, I just can't talk to them. And, and sometimes we do this unintentionally. Sometimes our actions and our, and our attitudes... When people observe that, and most often it's those people that are closest to us, parents, it's our children sometimes, grandchildren, the people that we work with, the people that observe us. They see us and they say, if this is Christianity, this is what being a good church member is all about, I don't need that. That person is no different than me. I don't know how it benefits me. So sometimes we do it even unintentionally. See, our focus needs to be evangelical. We need to be thinking evangelically. We need to, brothers and sisters, be having evangelical conversations with one another. It's great to talk about our families, our hobbies, our jobs, what we did this weekend, last weekend, our health, all those type of things. It's great to talk about those things. Those are the things that connect us to one another. But the thing that we need to be doing is be having evangelical conversations. What is Christ doing in your life? How can I pray for you, brother and sister? How has the Spirit moved in your life today? What do you need from the church? We don't have these conversations unless, frankly, a lot of times we're standing in the middle of these pews. We need to have evangelical conversations with one another. And and we need to be alert for evangelical opportunities with those friends, with our family, with our coworkers. There's opportunities that present themselves all the time where we can have evangelical conversations, where we can move the conversation in a spiritual direction and talk to them about Christ and not hinder them. And, and we need to embrace evangelical encounters. When we see that person that is outside of our moral standards, that, that person that is an untouchable in our minds, we would certainly never say that, but we think that. We need to push through that. We need to push through that, as Jesus described, sin of hindering them and go to them. We need to push through it. And we need to have an evangelical conversation with them. We need to embrace that opportunity. And this only comes when we pray. God's going to give us the opportunities, but we're not only going to be ready when we pray. We need to pray in the morning. God, show me what I need to do. I'm going to have conversations today. 
Help me to make them evangelical. I'm going to see people today that you want me to tell about Christ. Help me to see Christ in this situation and talk to them. We need to have it in the morning. We need to have it as we're leaving, when we take a break. When, throughout the day, we need to be praying for this. Because see, God draws the elect to Him. He is doing that every moment, every day. He's drawing the elect to Him. And in that process, we can be a wall, and I'm talking a pre-Trump wall with holes and people can get all around it, right? So it's more of a speed bump, I guess. We can be a speed bump because God's going to draw people to him no matter what. We can't stop what God is doing. We can be a speed bump. We can hinder the process. Or we can be a conduit. We can point people to Jesus. You, you just, here, let me help you get to Jesus. What can I tell you about Jesus? Because he, he goes into what the kingdom of God is about. But look what he says. He, he continues on. He says, he says, truly, I say to you. And we see that and understand that he is saying, pay attention here. This is important. Truly, I say to you. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This kingdom of God... There's going to be a point in time when the kingdom of God is a literal kingdom, thrones and all that kind of business. Today, when we read kingdom of God, we understand that's salvation. For us, we enter the kingdom of God through salvation. So he's talking about salvation here. And salvation is a free gift. That's why he uses the, the language of receiving it. Salvation is a free gift of God. And it's the most glorious gift we could ever receive. See, there was a time when man, when man was created to be with God in a tight relationship, intimate relationship. When we read about the Garden of Eden, man walked with God in the Garden of Eden. Is the relationship. But the problem happened that sin entered the picture and broke that relationship. A holy, righteous God cannot be in the presence of sin. And from that moment forward, man was personified with sin. We have sin. And God can't be in sin's presence. The only thing to fix that was Jesus Christ. God sent His Son to come, live a perfect life, die on a cross, shed His blood, be buried and raised again in three days so that our sins would be covered. So that we could once again be reunited with God in relationship. And that comes through believing. He draws us and we believe and now we enter in a relationship with God. This is a gift that is given to us by God. And it's one that it is incalculable we cannot even fathom the price that God paid in the blood of Jesus Christ, but it's given freely. And to be received as a gift. Think about receiving a gift. Think about a child receiving a gift. Christmas, we, we sent a, a, a gift to, to our grandson in Florida. It was this little tyke's toolkit. It was this great big thing. It took forever to get there. But it came in this package and you might be familiar with those. It's, so it's cardboard covered with tools that they zip tie and super glue and make sure that you're never going to get them off that cardboard. And then it's covered with plastic and it has this cardboard box frame around it. We wrapped that up and we sent it off to him. And we wanted to, we wanted to see as he opened it. He's two years old and this would be cool. And uh, so we FaceTime with him. That's, a, that's a, a modern thing, right? Everybody FaceTimes. So we FaceTime with him and uh, so we could watch. And... You watch them, a lot of us, it, it aggravates me. The people that you get a present, and then they go to the tape, and they peel the tape, then this tape, or get, get a knife, cut that cleanly. 
Are you going to save the paper or use it? I don't know. But they do that. Children don't do that. Babies don't do that. They tear into it. And then once he saw it, did he wait for a pocket knife to open the box and slide it out? No. He grabbed the cardboard and started tearing that thing apart, ripping things out of it. Yeah. That's the way a baby, a child, receives a gift. With anticipation, with joy. Yes, give me this. This is so cool. Knowing that he didn't do anything to deserve this, it's just cool that he got a gift. That's what he's saying. How we receive the kingdom of God. We receive salvation. Don't hinder anybody for coming to me. For to them belongs the kingdom of God. It needs to be received with anticipation, with joy. Praise God. Thank you for this gift. And he finishes by giving this example. He took them in his arms. He didn't lay. They came asking to have their hand, his hand laid on them. He took them in his arms. He cradled them, and he blessed them. All who come to Jesus are loved by Jesus. He takes them in. He did more than simply touch them. So, ask this question as we close. Are we indignant towards sin? Not just other sin, but like the Corinthians, are we grievous towards our own sin? Are we eager to prove ourselves innocent? Are we hindering other people from coming to Christ? Are are, are there attitudes that we have that cause a speed bump for those that God is drawing to himself? Maybe even unintentionally. Are we making Christ, the church, unattractive to those around us? Are we thinking evangelically church? Are we thinking and having evangelical conversations with one another, with those outside of the church? We need to be. And finally, have we received the kingdom of God like a child with anticipation, with joy, believing we have done nothing to earn it. When we finish the service, I want to be available. Anybody that has questions about what this means, if you have questions today about salvation, what exactly is this? Maybe you have a question about what you need to do to receive this gift. I I would love to talk to you about that. When we get to a service, I'm going to be, there's a prayer room up here off to my left, to your right, in the front of the sanctuary. I'm going to be in there. Uh, And if you want to come talk to me, maybe you want me to pray with you uh, for anything that's going on in your life, or just talk about this or anything else, I would love to do that with you. Father, today we give you praise. And we, we thank you that you have loved us enough to draw us to you and to give us the gift of salvation, your kingdom. We pray that you help us to see the sin in our lives and respond like the Corinthians, like Jesus, with indignation. Help us to grieve our sin, revile our sin. Help us, we pray, to recognize even attitudes and behaviors that we might have that display and even display that might keep others from 
coming to Christ, whether those are intentional or unintentional. Lord, we pray that you help us recognize the absolute and overwhelming joy it is to have received your kingdom so that we cannot help but share that gift with everyone we encounter. Helps us receive it like a child. May you forever be glorified in and through us, we pray through Christ's name.